Thanks so much for tuning in to the Property Funder podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, why not? This is your chance. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five star rating so that we can continue to have fantastic guests on like today's guest, Peter. And now, without further ado, let's move on to the podcast for your audible and visual delectation. And we're live and welcome to the Property Funder podcast. I'm here with Peter. Peter, uh, what is your full name, your business and uh, what does your business do? Um, so my name is Peter Williams. I'm uh, CEO of Prop, um, which is a finance comparison site, a uh, specialist finance comparison site. And I also have another business, which a lot of people don't know about, which is in pensions and investments. So I'm a director and founder of a company called Firmitas as well, which looks after about 170 million of people's money um, that's invested for them. Just like myself, uh, uh, fingers in many pies. Uh, where do you want to start? Well, actually, let's start from the beginning, perhaps. So how, how did we get to Prop and Firmitas? Let's let's walk through the journey. Um, you know, kind of, did you know you wanted to go into financial services when you were in your, when you were in your teens or, or is it something you fell into? Uh, fell into. So um, long story, very short. Um, I went to university at Bournemouth, um, studied marketing. Um, I loved the first year, I think, like everybody does didn't really enjoy years two and three. If I'd had my way, I think I would have dropped out of uni in, in year three. Mum and dad got in the ear and told me, you've got to get it done. It's a four-year course. Um, so finished off the, the degree in the fourth year. Um, I basically moved all of my um, seminars and lectures to one day. So I, I actually asked the teachers if I could move them from you know, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday to just all on a Monday, which then enabled me to work for four days because I was interested in earning money. Um, and I basically got offered a job as an estate agent, just in a local estate agents, um, as a sales negotiator. Um, within a within a year, I was sat next to a, a mortgage advisor that was in in branch, showing me. I remember, you know, twenty uh, it wasn't twenty seven tech at the time, it was Tri Gold at the time, um, and me sat there thinking, "Cool, that looks quite easy. I could do that." Um, Overnight, I was selling a uh, property for a particular client who was a headhunter for a mortgage firm called TML. The mortgage, it's not the mortgage lender that everyone thinks of. Uh, TML, which was basically um, a subprime broker based down in uh, just outside of Southampton. Um, and uh, the funny story is I was actually met that particular person that was selling the property in a bar that evening and told me that the next day there was a, a round of interviews. Would I attend because she felt I'd be great at doing mortgages? Um, drunk in a nightclub and in a bar I decided I'd say yes <laughs> Did, didn't prep um, and turned up to an interview the next morning at half past nine and there's 30 other people going for these in particular interviews um, and yeah I ended up being successful um, in capturing that role I jumped from being a state agent into a, a non-advised role in a telesales call centre um, basically arranging mortgages for people with adverse credit that was probably back in 2005 now. Um, and then um, I was there for a couple of years, um, really enjoyed it, earned good money at a young age, um, but then felt I could do this myself. Um, so self and business partner Ben Larkin um, set up, left and set up a company called Simply Finance Group, which was basically me and Ben in his back bedroom in Southampton, um, you know, 
cheap desks, cheap everything just to get started, um, advising on um, what I would call just normal prime customers, first-time buyers, normal remortgages. Um, where we came from TML, it was always a fee charging model. Um, so from day one, we charged fees you know, back in 2008. We, we set up just perfect timing just before the crash. <laughs> um, but um, we always charged fees. We always generated leads. Um, I'll say generated leads. We always purchased leads um, from your normal lead providers. You know, back then, like your PAA leads, um, you know, finance leads online. Uh, and we basically just bought lead after lead after lead. Um, we, we put enough money by to so that we could trade for six months without having to pay ourselves a wage. Every time we took a bit of money, we basically reinvested into the business, bought more leads. And within six months, nine months, we had our first member of staff who was, who was still with me today. Um, so he came in as an administrator. Um, he's now my head of operations at, at, at Prop. Um, but that particular business then grew um, to around about 60 of us. Um, and then we sold that business to John Charcoal. It was basically a big tele-sales call center of uh, mortgage advisors. Uh, we started getting to the, uh, the areas of having some self-employed advisors out on the road, um, but we sold to John Charcoal. Um, we sold to Southampton office to John Charcoal. Um, and yeah, then went onto the board at John Charcoal uh, for 18 months. Um, and then uh, as soon as our, our sort of two year stint was, was finished, um, I decided that it was time to move on and set something new up. So that's where we set up Firmitas, which was the wealth management business. Um, that was a particular business that we always had a small interest in, um, which had about 10 million under management at the time of five years ago. Um, and we grew that business to 170 million under management is where it is today. But prop came about because as part of St. James's Place, which is where Firmitas is as a business, we weren't allowed to uh, advise on bridging finance, commercial finance, anything sort of non-regulated. Um, and I remember at the time, one of my good friends of mine asked me if if they if I could arrange a commercial mortgage for them and I had to say no. Um, so I told him to go on to Money Supermarket, have a little look around and see what rates were there. And um, he came back to me literally 48 hours later and said, I can't get any quotes. I can't get any figures. Um, I need to go and speak to my bank manager. Um, I can't make an appointment for six weeks. And uh, it was basically, that can't be right. You must be able to get quotes online. So I had to look for him, went to your money supermarkets. And he was right. You couldn't get a comparison quote for a commercial mortgage or bridging online through the comparison engines. You had to press a button, click, go off to a different broker. That particular broker wanted your name, address, telephone number, everything before they even give you some figures. So overnight, it came to us that we said people need choice. People need to be able to see what they're doing before they enter into a potential transaction or start the process of buying a property. So we built, at the time it was called Timsco, um, T-I-M-S-C-O. Um, pretty random. Um, and it literally, we needed to do it overnight because we had a, a half decent sized commercial deal that we needed to source. So we set up the company overnight. Um, we set up the business and then we were just about to go live with the comparison site when COVID hit. Um, and we were focusing on the commercial world and the commercial world went kaput. Um, so we quickly, I say quickly, over a six month period, we started adding the other products. We, we added bridging finance to it and we felt that bridging finance was the area that we could make quicker money um, as a startup um, in a market that needed bridge and finance where they didn't really need commercial. Um, so the business then literally just grew month on month um, and we've added product after product after product um, and we've gone from you know, two of us two and a half years ago to 25 of us now. Well, that's very, that's very rapid growth. Um, the people that are working in the people that are working in prop 
or as it was Timsco. I'm curious as to how you had the, the, the genesis of the name. That, those 25 people, how many of them are, you know, are, are sort of on the commercial finance side and how many of them are sort of, I suppose, on the tech and web development side of things? So we outsource. So we have internally, I've got um, Ben, who's business partner in the previous business. He's the techie of the two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's um, CTO. Um, he helped us build between me, myself and Paul, who's the MD. We basically came up with the concepts, um, yeah, put the wireframes together um, and basically went to a tech team and said, build me this. In that team at the moment, there's two people. Um, we outsource where we can from a cost perspective. Um, we're trying to keep lean. We're trying to keep agile. We're trying to move with the times. Um, and we feel that there's certain expertise that we don't have in-house that we need to outsource and we don't mind paying a little bit, bit for mm. it. Um, but from an advisor team now, we've got, we've, again, we've got rapid growth. So we've now got 13 advisors. Um, and out of those 13 advisors, 10 of them have come through our academy or new recruit scheme um, where they have no experience in bridging commercial whatsoever until a year ago. And we've put them through a, a rapid training program uh, to get them up to speed. They generally come in and start off on buy to let mortgages, um, cut their teeth, learn the fact finds, learn how to speak to landlords, understand the market. Um, and then as they progress, we'll give them the slightly more complicated cases. But I've got a number now that are already moved from completely raw a year ago no cmap to doing you know development finance commercial finance bridging finance um you know it's pretty quick time frame um but we're quite de- we're quite demanding with, with that and we're very busy so it's it's a very much you sort of throw them in at the deep end a little bit uh, to be honest tell tell me if it's un tell me if it's this is a slightly unfair characterization but would it be right to say that your prop is essentially a fin- a commercial finance broker with a with, a, with an exceptional lead generation strategy by offering the, the price comparison aspect of it or or, or is it or, or is it somewhere or is it somewhere in, in between in between um, yeah. you're, you're right we do get um, we get a lot of people that say well you're just basically a broker um, the reality is we are broken deals um, but we're using tech to enable the customer to have a much smoother journey, to give them choice and transparency. And then internally, we're using tech as much as we possibly can so that we can deal with volume. Um, you know, Do I believe that we could transact a deal from start to finish without a human involved? Potentially on, I don't know, a, a regulated chain break bridging loan that goes with the best rate and it's the lowest loan to value and there's no quirks. Yes, they can be done. But some of these um, big specialist finance cases, I don't think you're going to get to that point for a long time. So we're, we're basically saying at every single stage of the process, where can I use tech to cut that out so that we can deal with more volume? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I agree with you because I think on, on the regulated mortgage side of things, or the regulated bridging side of things, the it's much more regimented in terms of the decision, the decision making process that you have to make or as far as the advice that you're giving to the client is concerned. In a commercial case, as, as we all know, just because someone is the cheap, offers the cheapest rate, that offers the best leverage doesn't mean that's the reason that you take the you take the deal. As we all know, um, performance is the is the key to is the key. And that's why you're you, you, it's a, it, you're looking at the combination, aren't you looking at the package? I, I'd be right in saying that you're not the only kind of comparison tool or site at the moment in in the, the commercial finance and bridging finance space talk to me about uh, talk, talk me around my skepticism and i say this obviously as a lender mm. but my skepticism around the the terms that the lenders that are that will be i suppose 
putting themselves up on your platform in terms and they'll tell you why i'm skeptical and 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 you're not gonna be surprised by this but i'm some of our listeners who are less familiar with our world might be in that what you see what you see advertised by people in the 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 bridging commercial finance development finance space isn't always what you get so so you know there's there's definitely a lot of smoke and mirrors around around pricing and so x lender might say well i'm 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 lend i'll do 75 percent LTV bridging at 0.49% a month. Mm. And we all know that that that's never that that particular lender. I'm not I'm not naming a lender in, in no, particular here. But you you're, you're smiling because you know it's, <laughs> it's you're, you're smiling because you know it's true. You know that particular lender, you, you that will happen once in a month of Sundays and mm. which 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 is basically the 12th of never. It's just yeah. not going to happen. So how do you how do you counteract uh, that kind of slightly cynical, I say slightly, very cynical behaviour and practices that many in the non-reg bridging and development finance space work within. Yeah, no, and I, I, I completely agree with you. And we found this out very early on. So I think the misconception from lenders on our website is that they want to be top um, and they want to be showing as the cheapest. So very early on, we had a lot of lenders that would say my best rate is point at the time, 0.49. Um, and then it quickly became apparent that actually after every time we asked them for a quotation, it never came back at 0.49. So our view is that's misleading the customer. Um, mm-hmm. So we've very quickly put in place that we have our own internal, um, what we call a, our own internal prop score. And uh, you've probably seen that we give prop scores for speed, service, price. Um, we do lender in a month, things like that. But we have our own internal committee where we sit down and we discuss the particular lenders. And if we see, because we can track every single quotation that goes in and out, and via the system. So if we see, um, and I won't name particular lenders, but a, a, a lender X that says to me they're going to do 0.49 every time it's at 50% LTV, but I'm actually getting 0.85 back, which happened a lot, um, we would take them off the panel. Um, and I say to take them off the panel, they would still be live in the back office system so we can use them as, a, as, a, as an advisor, um, but they wouldn't show on the comparison tool. Uh, we want the comparison tool to be as accurate as possible. Um, we feed back to lenders and say that you're, you know, you're, you're telling me you're doing 0.49, but you've never given me a 0.49. So we cannot put that on the website. So we're going to change it. And we've changed it ourselves to go to the, you know, the average quote for that particular lender might have been 0.85. We would change it on our comparison table to 0.85. And that is reviewed monthly. We're now getting to a point where we're, we're allowing the system to do that for us. So it was a bit of a manual process before, but the system now will send out technically a pro forma to a lot of uh, the lenders that um, are showing on the website to say, are these, num- are these numbers correct? We have uh, what we call an optimization process where um, we will send this particular deal that we've packaged up off to 10 lenders, let's say, and they'll all come back with what their quotes will be. The majority of them, and I'd say 8 out of 10, will come back at what their rate card is showing at or what their pricing is published on their website. But there'll be a few that will come back either higher or lower, and we query that, but we record every single bit of that data in our system. And if we then see an anomaly of this is showing it's this, but I'm getting more. We have a conversation with the BDM, conversation with the lender, and then we, we change it ourselves because we believe that the customer shouldn't be given a 0.45 rate on the comparison table. Um, mm. But it does, ha- it does happen. The hard bit is um, on the system, you know, you mentioned that there's other comparison websites. There are. Um, those comparison websites generally don't, don't give you um, the, rain, the rate and transparency without you pass- putting your personal details in. So you mm. can go onto prop and you could put 250,000 on 500,000 and you will get quotes and it will tell you what those leading quotes are. If you go on to one of our competitors, they will ask for name, address, email, 
telephone number um, and they'll ask you your inside leg measurement before they even give you a quotation. Now, the downside to ours is that actually if you've got a really quirky asset, it might throw out the wrong rate. Um, but that's why we then have the human behind the scenes mm. that will say that rate isn't correct. Let's have a quick conversation with you. And these are the more likely rates that are there. Yeah. So is it kind of, yeah, well, it's what we call, it's what we call with an Avermore sort of type two error, which is yeah. a type, a type one error is when you make a real mistake with credit. The type two error is when you're overly cautious with credit and, or, or you are, you're overly cautious with pricing. Um, and that's where it's kind of the, the it's, it's, mo- it's making sure that your mindset uh, the mindset and it is a move to refer, not no, or or put in front of someone something that looks highly unattractive, um, yeah. because that's that's potentially a lost customer, and you don't want to do that. Um, you know, especially if it's business that you would otherwise you know, that you would otherwise be able to place for them, or in, in in our case, business that we'd like to do, we just have to find a different way um, of looking at the deal to make it fit within the necessary parameters that that are acceptable so um yeah that's uh i, I think that's a a, a really helpful uh, explanation uh and i'm sure many of our listeners who aren't familiar with prop will probably be uh flying onto the website uh as as we speak and uh you'll see a a, a, a little surge in your web traffic um let's just go back to simply finance simply finance group because just talk about this I've, I've written down this 2008 was really do you think that was a do you think that was good timing or do you think that that uh, do you think it was good timing or do you think it was bad timing or, or, or at, the, at the time it was what the hell are we doing um but now looking back and it's and, and i see this current market as the same opportunity it was the best thing we ever did um because for me i'm one of these people that um i want to achieve i will work harder if there's a bit of pressure um that's involved as well um and you know at the, at the time, I didn't have a young family. Um, you know, I had a long-term, long-term partner. Um, now my wife. We just bought a property. I'd gone from a secured, employed role, really good money. Um, so I've got to make this work. Um, and it created opportunity. Whereas a lot of people were coming out of the market and panicking. People will always need finance in whatever market you're in, whether it be to buy a house or to refinance, to debt consolidate, or to home improvements. As long as you're in that space, and and and. I'm a big believer in specialism of, you know, you, if you're good at development finance, you do development finance, you're good at bridging, you do that. But at, um, but I also think back at, you, you have to be agile enough to be able to do a bit of everything. So at the time, uh, we were all interested in remortgages. We weren't, we were not that interested in first time buyers and purchases. So when that market fell out, people were refinancing. Um, and where we charged a fee, we didn't have to, um, you know, convert at a much higher level in order to make the same amount of money that somebody that doesn't charge a fee. Um, and we were very tight with our money. Um, like I say, we put six months worth of money by um, to be able to live. And if we didn't make any business in that six months, we could still pay our mortgages. Um, so what happened was we built up a nice, decent amount of cash beforehand and we didn't overpay ourselves. We kept it in the business. We kept ourselves lean um, and we kept all of our internal costs down. So we learned a lot from that period of time. And then the second week, you know, the, when other people were pulling back. So my, my first three, maybe four employees were previous colleagues at my other business that then went under. Um, as soon as they went under, we saw it as an opportunity. We've got the money in the bank. Let's do it. Let's take them on. So it was literally every month we made a profit, we took on another member of staff because we could afford to have that period of time where we could pay our mortgages for uh, or, or keep ourselves or our own personal income as low as possible. So that was t- so TML went, went went under, did it? 
Yes, it did. Yeah. And and why do you and what do you what did you see the reason behind TML? Was it just that it was focused on a focused in an area? I suppose if I if I talk say it out loud, it was focused in an area of of going after adverse credit people. It after the after the GFC and one of the main reasons why why the GFC happened was because people who were classified as adverse credit were being a rated their AAA rated right I guess Correct. that that kind of makes makes sense so that whole business model uh, that whole business model could wasn't sustainable and um, what what do you think uh, what do you think your secrets to success were when you were at, at TML and and why did you feel confident that you you and uh, you and Ben would would be would be able to be successful going alone um i think it's the same as it is still now like we're, we're hard workers you know we, we work long hours um we're, we're, we're grafters we'll we'll do things i would never ask a member of staff to do something that i wouldn't do myself or haven't done myself um i have to know everything i don't like the fact that if a member of staff asks me a question and i don't know it so we were constantly be like a sponge we're just absorbing everything um and rightly or wrongly, I'm one of these people that is, I can do, you know, I've got a can-do attitude. So if somebody called me and said, what about this scenario? I'd never say no. Um, it'd be, I'm not sure. Let me go and find out. I can do it. And then actually, the more and more you found out, there's a lot of lenders out there, again, 2008 and even now, that people don't know about. Um, so you could, if you took an easy deal, I don't know, 90% first-time buyer, goes with Halifax, no problem at all. Most people could, could place that deal. But if you get something a bit quirky, what I would say is as a, as, a, as a good advisor, doesn't give up. They keep going. They will find somebody. If there's equity there and the property's there and the income's there, somebody will do it. It just might be a higher price. And I think we had that attitude back then that every single lead that we had in, we saw as a cost to us um, and a way of us growing that business. Um, so we had to do something. Um, so we ended up becoming um, a bit of a jack of all trades, I'm being honest, but but at an age where we could absorb absolutely everything. I mean, it's interesting because I've talked about it in the past that you can't, I think as a lend, I think as a lender, particularly in specialist arena, you can't be all things to all men. Um, you, you know, especially in a, in a highly intermediated market um, like bridging and development, we've, we've, you know, and, and apologies to our listeners who've heard, us, heard me say this before, but we had to pigeonhole ourselves. And, and with that, it was only when we realised that we had to pigeonhole ourselves that we actually started to see much better traction with brokers. And it, and it's probably, it's a bit, I'm using the, uh, using prop as an example. Um, you, it's much, it'll be much, you, you, it's probably much easier for you to be able to sell us as a lender on, on prop when you know exactly what we do and what we're good at and where you where you would give us a kind of five star rating for a particular type of case. If if we're sort of this sort of thin blob that just sort of, you know, that's a sort of one a two star across the board, you're never going to pick us for anything because you're like, well, I don't really know what they're good at. And so I'm just sort of like, well, I'll, I'll, they're, they're there. But, you know, I'm, I'm, ne- I'm never sure when I actually use them. And mm-hmm. um, whereas I think as a broker, you like you say, you need to probably be able to, like you said, be agile and be able to do lots of different things um, because you need to be able to respond to the market environment and the circumstances that, that you're in. And so 2008 and 2000, you know, 2008, 2013, 15, 16, whatever, 20 um, different thing, different situations arise. I mean, you were talking about the focus on remortgages in 2008 and understandably that's that probably, you know, just intuitively, I'm thinking that makes logical sense from a brokerage standpoint, because um, the homeowners, they've probably got equity in uh, in their properties. They've probably got, um, you know, they're definitely not ninjas, are they? They've probably got they've probably got income. They're probably employed, um, et cetera. 
Um, and so and they've got an event that that needs to happen. Um, whereas if you're going for first time buyers, I guess in that situation, the valuation might might not come out. They might not have the equity. They might not be able to get the 95 percent mortgage that they need to, to get on the housing ladder. Um, do you see, did you see some situ, uh, some parallels with sort of 12, 12 months ago and in, and then into the earlier early part of this year where actually that's the, the the sort of the residential mortgage market um probably represented a, a an interesting and more attractive space um mm. particularly for remortgages than trying to chase after new transactions particularly in the in more lucrative spaces like commercial and uh commercial finance and um and say development slash bridging yeah definitely um you know again just just to you know, touch on the point about purchases as a, as a business and I, and I mean back from when we started simply we never really looked for any kind of first-time buyers or house purchase i always looked at remortgage because it was a it was um for all the reasons you just mentioned but also including estate agents are very good at um potentially taking business off of somebody like myself yeah when they go to make the offer so there was so many things that i couldn't control in a first-time buyer or a house purchase that we didn't really like and we we would have more fallout in that particular space than we would remortgage so quickly we became a yeah a remortgage expert so to speak um you know when i compare it to prop now um so firmitas the wealth management business um also has um seven regulated mortgage advisors within that business um they will deal with a lot of residential remortgage um what i don't want to do and i could easily move those people into prop i could easily build a, a team in prop for regulated remortgages I don't want, I want, like you said about pigeonholed, I want prop to be known as specialist finance. Um, I don't really want it to be the regulated remortgage provider and that takeover. Um, you know, that isn't the goal there. Um, we did see, as I say, especially in Firmitas, a big surge, and we have done in the last six months. Um, there was a period of time where it went really quiet in residential mortgages um, you know, for, for, for the market, um, but there was a really big surge of people just taking rates. Um, and sitting on them for, for six months. Um, and we've had a real big peaks and troughs of completion months as a result of it. Um, you know, had a really good completion month last month, probably have a really good end of the year because people's rates are coming to an end. Um, mm. But that bit in between, that market's gone a little bit quiet for us. Um, whereas I think what we found in the commercial and bridging space is your um, professional landlords, professional developers, they do that for a living. Um, so they've continued to trade throughout. Um, they have to make money. If they do nothing, they're not making any money. So it might be that the cost of funders are a little bit more expensive. It might be, um, you know, cost of supply is more expensive. But if they can still turn a profit that might be lower than the previous deal, they're still buying. So, mm. you know, we've seen a massive shift in the last three or four months in particular in that particular space around commercial and bridging and development purchase and refinance. I guess on the commercial refinance, many, many commercial landlords will be seeing that they're it's a it's a similar phenomenon to the residential market where they're seeing their existing term facilities coming to an end and they're going to need they're going to have events and they're going to need to refinance that um some some of that will be will be more challenging uh than some of those deals will be more challenging than they might have been to uh, you know 18 months two years ago due to different appetites to commercial finance and then also potentially falling values as well in in the commercial space in, in terms of your inquiry levels for for purchases for commercial and bridging slash development non-rig bridging bridging and development deals are you still are you seeing volumes falling because i think uh, whereas someone who wears a uh, wears hats in both the commercial property arena the development land arena and then also the development finance arena um 
probably the biggest issue that I'm seeing is is a, a reduction in the amount of stock that's available. Um, the appetite may be there from people who are active in the space, but actually the issue is the supply of opportunities right now. Um, I mean, is, is that something you're seeing as well? Yeah, where we're a growing business, it's quite hard for us to really get a gauge on on that because right, okay, uh, we've just we've just won a couple of really decent contracts for introducers, so um, our conversions have gone down definitely um, from an individual advisor perspective. Number of leads in to number of deals going ahead has gone down due to stress test, lender appetite, minimum loan sizes, all of that side of things. But as a business. We so you can see that coming. You know, you know that's coming. You can sort of predict where we're going to be in three to six months from a market perspective. Um, obviously, without any major twists and turns that could get thrown at us like last year. But um, for us, what we did is we said, well, we know we're going to convert lower, so I need more of them. So you mentioned earlier that it's a good marketing machine, the website, and we do a lot of PPC advertising, and a lot of SEO advertising. It's a bit of a tap, so we just turn it up, get more leads into the into the practice, if we know we're going to convert half, it's not as simple as this, but if we know we're going to convert half of what we did last year, I need to get double the amount of leads um, to continue on the path that we were on. Um, and we've done very well in the last three or four months where we won a lot of those big contracts to help. We are seeing a lot of um, commercial refinance that is coming from, um, they had a deal with Barclays NatWest, the high street, five years ago, and they're coming to the end of the term. They're at low loan to value, but the high street is saying, I don't want to deal with that space anymore. Um, and that is then where we get picking up a lot of business because they're going to the standard variable rate. People are worried about interest rates going up and you could be at a standard variable rate of anywhere between eight and 12 with some of these lenders. Um, and they're wanting to refinance um, and take the, the cash out. But their payments um, have jumped dramatically um, that their, you know, their their income, their monthly income that they were earning off that particular property is maybe halved, um, maybe a thousand pounds you know, less. So they're taking cash out. Um, and they're taking cash out for the opportunities that you mentioned. We've had our f we've had two this week, which is the first time for a while where we've had two people gazumped, um, where they've gone over an asking price on particular deals. And this is a commercial deal, or are these, are these commercial property acquisitions? Yeah. Two commercial property acquisitions, uh, and they they were I say to commercial commercial with potential, so um, shops with uppers that haven't yeah. been converted. Okay. People are looking at that, and um, and actually lands. Um, what we're finding is there's a lack of land with planning permission. So those ground up developers, yeah. Um, yeah, I've got quite a few that we we look after regularly and they can't find anything because every time they're going for something, let's just say it was on for 300,000, it's going 50,000 pound more because the smaller builders and developers are not getting enough business. So they're quite happy to take a lower margin and pay over the odds. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can say firsthand we've got, we're getting, I think, a reasonably good price considering the market conditions we're getting a reasonably good price for a consent a, a consented scheme that we've got um in the home counties um and you, you know it seems like the developer is hot to trot because they're, they're they've got issues with they've got issues with their next opportunity um increased the increased cost of financing is um you know it's just a, it's just an input cost for for a developer because it's not like they've got a you know if you're if the cost of your development finance has gone from let's call it six and a half percent which is might have been 18 months two years ago and it's now 10 11 12 percent which is kind of the rate now um once you add on the margin to the base uh, to the base rate um you could say well that's a doubling of your finance cost but at the end of the day your finance cost is a proportion of say your build cost uh and the, and the cost of the land it, it's it, it sort of pales into comparison so it's not as much of a not as much of a big deal but i think 
and I'd be interested to get your take on it, whether some of your clients are hearing the same thing. And we, we've got a, we've actually got a scheme in West Berkshire and we're probably going to have to take that to appeal. Not because the not because the council don't like the scheme. I think the council there's, there's a lot of local willingness to see the scheme come forward. It's 31 detached houses. That's you know that's a lot of units in in a in a nice part of the world that probably needs more housing. And the issue is though that the just as we're about to kind of get to the final knockings, essentially agree the sort of affordable housing contribution section 106. Um, turns out the council probably nearing bankruptcy and they can't throw any resource at the application and so the only way that we can so the only way that we can actually get this looked at and get the consent on on this is to go through an appeal mm. so we have to we have to effectively appeal it to have the planning inspectorate look at that scheme and as we're seeing increasingly multiple local authorities going bankrupt plus you've also got this issue with planners still with still in that kind of well i'm going to sit and watch netflix for half the day and i'll probably do two and a half days worth of work in a five-day working week and i'm probably going to focus on the big bar at home scheme for 300 units and your you know your v-lux uh your v-lux windows on your homeowner and then your, your sme developer in the middle is going to get forget forgotten about so we're, we're facing a situation where there's no there's no supply of development opportunities. And I was at a I was at a shoot with a law firm called Red Lake Bell last week. So we were doing clay pigeon shooting and there was a developer there. He's got about 2000 units. Uh, he's got about 2000 units in various stages of planning or construction. And he said to me that it's quite likely that we'll only in the UK, we will only build 100,000 new units next year. So you think about the impact supply. If you've got a if you've got a consent, you're not going to you, you mustn't give that away because yeah. the the GDVs that developers are going to be achieving in 24 months time because of the lack of supply, plus the fact that interest rates are in, inevitably going to go down substantially from where we are now. Why why would you? But I mean, are you hearing? It sort of that's all sound like a rant, but are you hearing? Are you hearing any different? Do you have a different take on that? No, I'm, I'm completely agree with you. Um, again, we're seeing more more often than not, especially in the last couple of months, we're getting a lot more land with planning that's coming through, um, and hardly anything on land without planning. People are not yeah. wanting to buy the land without planning because of the cost of finance. Um, you know, you used to have um, something would take a, a bridging loan, hold the property, get the planning permission, build it, refinance out. That's really hard to try and get that done and be accurate with your timescales um, and costings to make that potentially work. Because if it is taking nine, 12 months to get planning through, then you get your planning through, then you've got to get your refinance through, then you've got your development through. It's actually quite hard to predict. So what we're finding is a lot of people are actually going after, and that's where the gazumping is generally happening, um, where they're prepared to pay a little bit more for those properties that have already got the planning. Um, yeah. We, we, I, I, we've had, again, a couple of cases in the last month um, where the clients have been told to do the appeal process to speed things up and to save them costs. Um, so, yeah, I, I echo everything you, you say. Um, I, I don't, we're not seeing any different um, on the floor at all. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, it's, it's good to see that, I mean, it's still good to hear that developers, are, you know, still got appetite, still want to get, uh, still still want to get things going. But, I mean, do you think it's going to be a difficult time, though, for 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 a lot of 
specialist finance brokers, the ones who maybe don't have that sort of residential mortgage arm, um, if volumes are going to be struggling and, you know, I suppose tech enabled players like yourselves are nicking their lunch. Are you see, do you see that as potentially a, a, a bad time for the sort of small independent specialist finance broker? Yeah, I, I do. And I, and I also, th- I think it's going to, I don't think we're, we're through it. I know there's, um, you know, swap rates have come down again. Um, there's good news this morning on inflation. There's talk of interest rates being at a high, but I don't think people realize actually the next six months are going to be tough um, in particular, maybe even into, into nine months. Um, you know, it's not all of a sudden people are going to suddenly turn around and say, right, house prices are going to go back up, rents have calmed down, interest rates are back where they are. There's a, there's a process that, that has to happen for all of that to, to come into play. Um, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't really want to be a broker at the moment that specializes in or is based in an estate agent um, that just deals with purchase business. Um, you know, that it's, it's got to dry. That's got to dry up. Um, you've got a lot of people that are coming off of fixed rates at the end of the year. That I, again, I don't think have realised how big a jump that, those costs are going to be. I think in their head they know their mortgage has jumped four or five hundred pounds, but they're not pre- preparing for that um, until it hits in January, February, and then they realise that actually five hundred pound more has gone out of their bank account and they can't afford to do things. Um, I, I think it will be tougher, but I do think you're going to get a lot more secured loan second charges, a lot of debt consolidation um, that will happen uh, early part of the year. But I can see us having a really quiet end of the year. I think we, yeah, we've got, as a, as a business, we've got a, a massive pipeline, probably bigger than we've ever had. Um, and those cases are coming fr- those cases are slowly coming through. Um, but I think, if, I think December this year is going to be very much uh, a bit like August. It's a Christmas off. Um, yeah. we've, had, we've had a tough year. There's down tools for a bit. Um, and see where we are. We've got a lot of people holding a lot of big developers and a lot of big landlords that are just sort of sitting back and waiting um, to see. Um, but I'd like to think six to nine months, it'll go the other way and it'll go back into a, a bit bit of a boom. Yeah, I, I've been of the opinion for a while that interest rates have interest rates have probably been raised too far, too fast, and you just haven't. It's just not the, the bigger issue is that we haven't allowed enough time for the you know, for the impact to be fed through into the economy. I think a lot of businesses feel it a bit more instantly, especially if they're, um, you know, especially if they're if they're on floating rates. I, mean, I myself have a floating rate commercial mortgage on one property, which is very painful, but just about just about managing on it. And you know, don't want to move to a fixed rate because they're going to have to pay a massive ERC. It's like, well, you just sort of weigh it up. You have to weigh it up, don't you? Um, but then you look at you look at households, you talk about like that 400, 500 pounds. And in a lot of ways, I, I sort of, I've always had the, I was thinking over the summer that I think a lot of people have kind of got their head, their heads in the head, their heads in the sand. They're like, I'm going to enjoy the summer. I'm not going to change, change my lifestyle through, throughout the summer. But come the autumn, when I've got six weeks before, six, eight weeks before my, uh, my remortgage, where I'm about to hit, have this huge wall of additional interest costs thrust upon me. Um, now I'm going to have to tighten the belt. And I think I guess we're starting to see that with the increased unemployment, um, you know, in, inflation numbers, as you say, were the print was was down. I and mean, we're, we're recording on the 20th of, uh, of of September. So just just for re- relevance, if you want to timestamp it, um, you know, I think the reason why interest rates are going to come down, it, it, it's it's and rents are going to come down. It's because we're going to see quite a lot of unemployment coming through, um, you know. I'm hearing anecdotal evidence about 
um, specialist lenders cutting 25% of their staff. Um, you know, a lot of brokers, CVs now landing on people's desks, for example. You know, a, a lot of financial services businesses will have been on hiring freezes for a long time. And they're probably going to trans translate that now into into cutting headcount and going down to sort of the bare minimum of staff that they need to, to to see things through. And yeah, interest rates will go down, but they only they they will only go down when the Bank of England sees sufficient pain in the economy. And we've all seen that the way the Bank of England operates, they they will allow the the economic underperformance to overshoot before they before they take any action and then and then they'll be playing catch up and they'll overreact overreact as they have been tended to do so it's going to be a it's, it's going to be an interesting time it's going to be very very painful i mean you know you obviously are, it's in your instinct instinct to manage your cash flow working capital well mm. um uh, you know uh, from the times that simply finance we operate in a similar way mm. you know we've got at the moment, we've actually got enough money in the bank that we probably don't need to write a, write another loan for three years. We need to see a, a single penny come through on a redemption or on a new loan for three years or something like that. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a very strong position to be in, um, and you maybe you need to do it to see through see through some of the difficult times. Yeah, and that's the hard thing for us at the moment. We're um, obviously we're in big growth mode. Um, got lots of business coming in, which is really good. But I always have to have one eye on the. Hang on a second. I've got you know, 30 staff here that I'm responsible for their bills, their livelihoods, their their kids and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, we have to be careful of expanding too quickly. Um, and you have to then go. And then part of me is always like, come on, let's keep going for it. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. But you've got to go, well, hang on a second. You know, there is a, there is potentially a six to nine month pain here. But we did say that nine months ago. Um, and now we're even bigger than what we were nine months ago and we're still going. We're in a good position as well as a business. Um, but I think we're, again, at that stage in in our crossroads as a, as a business is where, what do you do now? Do you just go for it or do I just take a little bit of a pause just for a few months just to get through things? Um, and, and at the moment, I, I, I'm thinking well, I've got a lot of, you know, I've got a lot, lot of new starters, um, you know, at least we embed them into the business, but we have no plans to stop because I do see that there's a big opportunity there because of people like you say, there's going to be a lot of, uh, and I agree with you, I think there's a lot of lenders and, and brokerages um, and staff that will make cuts. Um, and I want to be there when they make those cuts to potentially try and take these people on if they're, if they're good enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that's the, that's the right ad, uh, approach to take. Um, you know, we saw it in, we saw it in COVID uh, during COVID times, a number of, a number of lenders closed because they didn't have it. They didn't have the working capital. You know, there was, uh, you know, one one in particular, quite reasonably well-known name. Um, we've seen and we've seen others, uh, others in the lending space just not be able to sustain themselves because they're not they don't have the working capital to, to be able to keep going with the volume with within a sort of low volume market. And um, I guess on the brokerage side, it, it's a bit more difficult because you don't have you don't have a sort of um you know that sort of recurring revenue that, that comes from interest margin on a monthly basis whether that's accrued or whether that's paid current um so uh, i mean you have i suppose you'll have a repeat business from from uh re remortgages every every two three four five years whatever but um but it's it's still not the same and if you're not if you don't have the transaction volumes it becomes difficult but but i hear you because i think hear you about look looking for the opportunity if I look at if I look at COVID time, we had the opportunity to furlough people. We didn't furlough a single person. We were a smaller business then, but it was still a significant business. And we essentially said said to ourselves, if we have to 
essentially set fire to half a million to a million pounds to keep the thing going, while, keep the business going whilst we've got, you know, whilst we go through a period of low volume. That's something that we're willing to do. But what I won't sacrifice is the ability to respond to the opportunity to, for growth. And, you know, we benefited from the fact that the minute that, that sort of the world kind of came back to life, we weren't having to reintegrate furloughed people. Um, you know, we weren't having to rehire people that we made redundant. We were able to just get back in and, and, and crack on and start growing. And, and yeah. it sounds to me like you, your mindset is, is exactly in that same place. Yeah, we, we, we were exactly the same. Didn't have to furlough people, touch wood. I've never had to make somebody redundant. Um, don't want to. I'd rather um, sacrifice money in the business to, to keep them all on. Um, and, yeah, you mentioned that then there's certain lenders that did it and they've struggled as a result. You you can't get the, you know, if you've got a member of staff that's been working for you for a couple of years, has got good experience, you suddenly lay them off and then COVID sorts itself out. And a year later, you're looking for new people. To me, that's just a madness decision, you know, from a from a basic wage perspective as to what they would have cost to keep them there. You know, we know the, the cost of recruits, the cost of training, the, the time and elements um, that, that get taken into consideration on this amounts to probably more than what that basic salary would have been if I'd kept them on the books. Um, so we try and we would try and leave everything until literally last resort before we made people redundant or anything like that. No, uh, uh, 100%, 100% agree with that. It's, it's like when you're doing a pay review you're looking at pay reviews and um you know there's always that temptation where you go oh well you know you could be like i i should be increasing everyone by 3.7 percent or whatever it is and then you look at uh, and then you look at what uh, but then you always have to have in the back of your mind you've got to be prepared to pay someone in excess either by way of a bonus or either by way of increase in salary what it would cost to replace them Mm. um and and you and, and that doesn't even factor in maybe the opportunity cost of not yeah. having of not having the utility that that person brings to you. Um, you know, you, I'm, I'm all for finding the right balance between employer and employee when it comes to the financial side of things. But but at the end of the day, um, sometimes you have to embrace the as a business owner, you have to embrace the cold, hard realities of what is this going to cost me if I don't if I don't do the right thing here? I wanted to I want to rewind a little bit and just talk about your sale to John John Charcoal um, of uh, of Simply Finance. What was the what was the what, what was the motivation and the inspiration of, of of that sale? And if you if you had your time again, would you have would you have not sold and gone in a different direction? <laughs> um, motivation at the time was, uh, I think, in our own lives of having. I'd literally just um, found out I was um, wife was having a baby. Um, we were at a period of time, I think, as a business where it was go to the next level or stay as you are um, or set up. Um, and we got on really well with the management team and the directors and everybody at John Charcoal. I think it was a perfect fit at the time um, for what the, the direction of travel was for John Charcoal and for us. Um, we're also at a level of the business where we would have had to invest some some money into the next level of growth. Um, and I think when you've got a you know, new young family in the background, you know, new properties and stuff like that, you do think, oh, do you know what? What if um, something goes wrong? Um, so we chose to, uh, and also we were, we're still young. Um, we still got a lot to learn. I'm still learning to, today. Um, you know, and I think now I'm glad we did it. Um, I do have times where I go, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done. Maybe we should have just carried on and gone bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but I do think that 
taking a little bit of money off the table for us at the age that we were to help make my family a bit more secure um, to get the home that I wanted. Um, I wouldn't change that element of it at all. Um, I'd never worked with, I'd never um, involved in a sale before, um, never been involved with private equity before. Um, all of the growth we've done in all of the businesses has all been organic. Um, we've never taken on any debt to, to do it. Um, so it was very much like, yeah, do you know what? Let's, let's, let's give it a go. Let's learn from it. Let's, let's see. Um, yeah, then be, yeah, we became a part of the board at Charcoal. We'd never really had you know, proper big board meetings before. Um, you know, I, like I said, I'd never worked in the city before. Um, you know, all of that, those sort of shiny things did attract us to the, to the sale. Um, I think after the sale, it was probably different to what we originally thought it would, it would be. Um, it's a lot harder work. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie, but f for me, I like to be able to be in control. Or I like to be able to influence things. And I, and I think it got to a point where I couldn't do that at John Charcoal. Um, so um, for the shareholding that we still had the remaining in the business, we decided that actually we want to go out and do this ourselves. And actually we wanted to be in charge of the ship and we wanted to control what we do. So, um, yeah, we had a, a no compete clause for a period of time, but I didn't have a no compete clause in, in wealth management. Um, so that was the natural progression for us because we had a we had a, uh, an interest in a, a financial advice business anyway that was kept separate from from John Charcoal that they didn't buy and it was sort of a parachute for us that we could go into there and we basically said we're going to grow that as big as possible and as quick as possible um, which is what we've done um, but yeah would I would I do it again uh, oh sorry if I had my time again would I have done it I, I think I would I don't think I would have changed anything because I don't believe we would be here now if I hadn't have sold um, when we did and I don't think I would have learned what I know now um, and I think we were a much better business now from what I've learned from people at John Charcoal and the whole process. Do you, do you see the lessons you've learned and the things that I suppose your your eyes would have been opened up to a lot of to a completely new world and you talk about private equity as, as one thing do you see some of the lessons and experiences from that time from that acquisition by John Charcoal as potentially being really additive to potentially the next phase of um, a prop and yeah, def us. definitely definitely um, let's say this yeah there's, there's pros and cons to you know, um, PE and, and raising money um, and I think we had you know the, there was a lot of benefits from doing so and there's a lot of negatives from doing so and it, it now as I, I now know the path of, of, of prop, you know, if we ever came to sell, we ever took in private equity, all of the things that I think we did wrong or were naive and didn't ask the questions, um, didn't put things in certain contracts that I didn't do the first time round, we would definitely learn from from, from now. Um, and in our, in our wealth management business at the moment, we're in a phase where we're buying businesses. Um, I'm using a lot of the learnings from when we sold to help us buy other businesses. Um, within Firmitas uh, and again the same with prop if you know we're always looking at opportunities if something came up that we think was a good fit um, we would want to potentially buy them um, for that like I say I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't know what I know now if I hadn't have sold and and let's let's just talk about Firmitas so um, you, so you say you're buying businesses and what, what does that look like does that look like you're what you're buying essentially let's say a retire someone is a wealth Wealth management IFA, mm. are they retiring and then you're bu effectively buying their client list and then retaining their services for a couple of years, or does it look at any, or, or do, do there, any of the acquisitions look different to that? Yeah, so we've done uh, four now. Um, two of them were exactly that: retiring, um, yeah, wealth managers, um, where you're technically buying the, the client bank 
the recurring revenue, the assets under management, uh, and then our advisors would take over from that retiring advisor, build the relationship with the client, yeah, um, and advise them on on, on all things wealth. Um, but we have had a couple where the advisor has actually backed themselves into the business. Um, you know, they've got themselves probably quite big. They didn't want to be business owners. They just wanted to advise. Um, so um, we will purchase, again, uh, an element of the, the, the client bank from them, and then they back themselves back into the business. Um, okay. And, and I mean, typically, typically the, the deals are structured, what, you give them some sort of upfront payment, and then there's a sort of earn out over a period of time? Yeah, it's changing over the last few years because of interest rates it's, it's, and the market that we're in, it's changing. So the first deal we ever did was you pay 80% upfront and then you, and you pay 20% in you know, 18 months' time. Um, it's now, because of the cost of finance for being able to do so, it's now shifting more to sort of 50, 25, 25, mm. 60, 20, 20. Um, some, you know, we're talking to somebody at the moment about them potentially backing themselves in and taking a small share in our business to make two businesses combined um, to make it a bit bigger. Um, but... That market, um, again, it's no real difference to the finance market um, in the fact that you have an asset, you have an LTV, you have income producing, that's your affordability. Um, can you get the debt in order to, to buy this business and does it work? Um, mm. You know, when interest rates were, you know, one and a half, two percent for some of the borrowers we were doing, um, it was great to, to buy these businesses. Now, when you look at the interest rates for some of these borrowers, nine percent makes it a bit tighter. Um, but because you're relying on fund growth, to get your capital value, which again, no different to house prices. Um, you're relying on the capital value of that pension or investment to grow, creates value for us as a business. Um, but the ongoing income that you're receiving and the management fees you're receiving from the clients would hopefully cover the loan payments themselves. Um, and it did for a long period of time, you were making in excess of the loan payments. Um, now it's more like you were saying on your commercial property, now a bit tighter um, in mm. that scenario, but certainly interest rates coming down, it creates more cash flow for us. Yeah, um, but, but we're on a big expansion plan in that business at the moment. And you mentioned St. James's Place. Were you kind of under their umbrella initially? Are you, are you still part of that or are you, are you out from under them now? Yeah, no, still still part of them. Um, yeah, we, we, we joined them at the beginning um, for the, you know, the reasons that most people do. Um, and yeah, they've been fantastic for us um, from a wealth management perspective. Um, they support us. They give us help. Um, myself and Ben, yeah, business partner, we're not diploma qualified. Um, you know, we're business people. Um, do I, yeah, I don't I don't want to get diploma qualified. We have members of staff that can do that, but um, it is actually again very similar to the, the mortgage world. Is you need clients, you need leads, um, you need advisors, you need to convert. Um, so yeah, most of the businesses that we've been involved in have always been that kind of model. Um, we, we we like to think we're pretty good at generating the business on the front end from the marketing perspective, um, and then yeah, we have uh, in-house advisors that will then do the transactions, so to speak. And and the and the game plan for for Firmitas is that to just grow, buy buy and build buy and build and then is is it ultimately it's sort of a consolidated sale to someone in in the space or or, or does it look different to that? Yeah, buy and buy and build buy and build. I think um, we've got a lot of organic. We're trying to do a lot of organic growth at the moment. So you have a big client bank. You want the referrals. You want the recommends. You want to do a good service for them, and that comes off the back of it. Um, we have no plans to sell it. Um, yeah, that that business is is a great one for like you say recurring revenue. Um, you know, it might be at some point that we allow staff to buy in. Um, you know, I, I don't like ever like people leaving or, or going anywhere else. You'd never stop them trying to progress their career. Um, but in the wealth management sort of stage, you do get to it as an advisor that says, I want a bit of value here. So they might go out and do it themselves. Um, so we're looking at all things at the moment. But at the moment, it is more about can we get more clients, more assets under management to get the recurring revenue to help protect you know, future downturns in the market? Mm. 
And um, I mean, it's I mean, it's just talking about kind of biggest challenges. Would you say? I mean, would you say that, that recruitment and hiring is your biggest challenge at the moment, or or or, or is there something else? Yeah. So both businesses are different. Uh, my biggest challenge for us again, I like to be able to control things. I like um, it's the things I can't control are always the things that I have to try and in my head control. Um, so again, if the market turned in a particular way, what can I do to be able to do that? I can't help it if interest rates go up to 12%, but what I can do is other things. Um, for, for us in prop, the hardest bit has been getting experienced staff um, that have specialist finance, uh, either qualifications or background. Um, there's not many locally for us that do it. with a lot of mortgage advisors locally. Um, so yeah, we've started, we started the academy last year and that was raw recruits. Um, probably takes a little bit longer than we sort of realised to get them fully up to speed. Yes, they can advise and yes, they can do basic deals. And, uh, but actually, you know, can they do that really big deal that's really complicated that no one's ever done before? Um, they're not quite at that level yet. Um, a lot of them are on the path to, to being able to do so. Um, so finding staff and advisors is, is hard. Um, and then in the wealth management perspective, actually it's a lot of regulation change and paperwork that is a, is a big threat. Um, consumer duty is, um, in my opinion, you know, a good thing that's happening, um, but that can cause issues in a uh, in a wealth management space because if you've got a particular client that doesn't like performance um, and blames you for performance, um, then you know they can technically switch off their ongoing management fees um, and charges. Absolutely no problem at all. Um, and obviously, if you built a business off the back of ongoing revenue and it gets turned off, that can cause you a bit of a problem. Mm. So there's a bit, bit of a threat there to at, at the moment to to the business model. And I, I guess I, I guess uh, that's where maybe being part of St James's Place is helpful because you've got you've got the benefit of a, a, a very wide network there mm. um, of, uh, of of people sharing ideas and maybe thinking about ways of combating or 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 adjusting. I mean, maybe not combating, but adjusting to the. Uh, the new regulatory norms that yeah that, and, that, that, and that in itself has created opportunity so again in the market that we're in you know i always look at it as i'm, the, I'm one of these people that i'm always positive i look at that as an opportunity um you've got a lot of advisors that are getting fed up with regulation changes all the time you know just got over covid um you know had all the rdr and um you know all the, all the previous changes that you then go do you know what i'm getting to an age where i just don't want to do this anymore um and those advisors um will sell so it's a good opportunity for me um and then as a as a buyer fast forward um a year when consumer duty has really kicked in in the wealth space i think all those clients that have turned off their management fees or, or are disengaged with their advisors i'm technically not going to buy those so you're only going to be buying what i would call good customers that are engaged um we're in a very good position that um as a business um we're very proactive on what we do we're always in contact with our customers and i don't think we've got hardly any customers that would ever say you know what they're not doing their job properly whereas there are a lot of wealth advisors out there that are taking ongoing management fees but actually never speaking to their customer that's why then in the consumer duty space this needs to happen um so for us again i see it as a as a big opportunity of cleaning up your client bank and like saying if you've got clients that aren't engaged that don't want to deal with you then they shouldn't be paying me any money yeah i, I mean i I've, it, it's funny when you say it out loud it's like well that make, makes perfect sense as as someone who has is a wealth management client of a of, of a private bank um not particularly big one i might add um uh, but you know it's still still a client I, I sort of maybe take for granted the level of engagement I get from my wealth manager to the degree that if I'm not, 
well, my relationship manager. If I'm not engaging with my relationship manager once every week or fortnight, that feels unusual to me. Yeah. And in fact, if I and it's them and they'll also they'll often be the ones reaching out to me or or, or, or trying to get in touch with me. Um, and and what maybe once you get to a certain you know uh, once you get to a certain ticket size, the level of service and engagement is naturally going to go up because you kind of get what you pay for. Yeah. But at the same time. Whether you're a 10 grand client, you're a 10 million pound client. And by the way, I'm not a 10 million pound client. <laughs> um, I wish. Um, there's, uh, there's a, you know, there is, I suppose, a minimum threshold of engagement that you should expect mm. from, from the people that are managing your money. Yeah. Especially if you, you know, say, if you're paying for it. Like to me, I look at it as a gym membership. If I never go to the gym, then I need to stop my monthly payment. Um, I'm not getting out of it what I joined for. Um, and it's no different. Um, you know, I, I want to, I invested my money with a financial advisor and I wanted the financial advisor to keep me updated, talk to me about what my plans are, help me achieve those plans. And if they're not doing that and they're not engaged, then I shouldn't be paying them. Yeah. Um, so and, and as a business, we you know technically models ourselves out on the opposite. I want the customers to be engaged. And if they're not and they're not our type of customer and you get it in, in, in prop as well, there's certain customers that you probably don't ever want to work with us or we don't want to work with them. But I think you have to be bold enough and go, Do you know what, this is not the right relationship. Let's go our separate ways. Yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree with that. If you're not, in, I, I, I think that the, I think that mindset is, is absolutely spot on. That trying to cling on to clients for the sake of it, so that you just, just so that you can say I've got X under management or I've got X client, X number of clients or whatever. It, it's such a false economy, and I, I think I don't think it makes for a particularly good business. Um, I don't think it makes for a good business culture, and I don't think, don't think it makes for particularly good business practices. I mean, it, it's it, they're sort of I sort of describe it almost as sort of it, it's sort of garbage statistics, isn't it? It's gar- It's a it's a bit like um, it's a bit like certain types of bridge lending where you're effectively making you know it's a it's a two or three month bridge loan. You're making next to no margin on it, and you're paying away all the proc. Um, at the end of the year, at the end of the year, you could turn around and at the end of the year, you could say, "I turn around and say, I've done a billion pounds worth of lending or whatever." You know, insert number here. But but if you haven't made any money from it, um, and you just and you're just doing it for the sake of it, what sort of business have you got? If you're not making money, how are you able to how are you able to invest in your business? How are you able to um, provide you know provide a better service, a better experience for for the people that work with you? Um, I mean, that's that's obviously a very specific, uh, a very specific example. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's it, it very much related. It's it's better to have a smaller business where you're providing a better quality of service than than a than a larger business where where people ultimately feel indifferent about you um, because you're not engaging with them. So um, I, I, th- I, I think it's some some very interesting points there. Um, just in terms of Fermitas and Prop. Uh, I, was, I actually was going to ask you which of your which of your which of your children is your favourite, but um, <laughs> uh, but I but but I wouldn't do that. To, I wouldn't do that to you, Peter. But I, what I did want to ask is about was um, vertical integration, and we've seen. And again, apologies to our listeners if we're talking to another broker and we're talking about vertical integration in the broking space. But I think it's relevant, particularly given the two businesses that you've got. Um, obviously, we've seen it. A few times uh, with acquisitions, say uh, the most high profile, obviously SPF and Howden's. Um, we've seen it with Mantra as well, um, more on the accountancy side. Do you see? Do you see the benefits 
Uh, and, and by the way, I was, talk, I was talking to Rob Jupp last week and they've got uh, they've got a general insurance business that they acquired last year. Um, do you see uh, do you see uh, vertical integration benefits between Fermitas uh, and Prop? And do you think more generally on, in this in the brokering broker space and the brokerage and advisory space increased vertical integration of, of businesses? I think with Fermitas and Prop, they're so different. Um, and from a regulatory perspective, I can't see that happening. Um, there is a, you know, a lot of clients where you know uh, one would benefit from the other. Um, you know, a big commercial property portfolio person that wants to invest into a SIP and needs a, needs investment advice. Then yeah, you you will have you know, the, the the relevant uh, introductions put in place. Um, yeah, touching on things like the the commercial insurance, that is something I would definitely like to to move into like for, for me um a bit like um some of the bits that i haven't talked about you know when it comes to leads as we uh, we used to used to um, buy leads from you know all the different lead providers it got to a point where going back to my control piece if they go under my business goes under um i can't control that so it was let's stop buying leads has actually produced them all in-house so we do all of our own internal marketing on on that so that we're in complete control of my lead source um things like um you know commercial insurance, general insurance, for you know, landlord insurance. At the moment, um, we will hand that out, but it's something that's on the roadmap for us to go, why am I doing that? Um, why can't I put that in-house? Why couldn't I build a team? Why don't I go and buy a business? It's a bit like Rob's done. Uh, you know, he's done amazing at what he's built. Um, could we do exactly the same thing? Um, where's my next sort of crossover? And, and that sort of came with um, how the site's been built out. Because like I said, we started off with bridging. The commercial space wasn't quite wasn't quite there. So we had it live on the site, but didn't spend any money from a marketing and advertising perspective. And that's now back. So we increase our spend there. Um, organically, we're then getting development finance. And then we're getting a huge amount of buy-to-lets so because most of the bridging that we do ends up being refinance. Um, so you've got all that sort of integration that's sort of already happened, but it's just us expanding out into different areas. Um, but I do think that at some point in the future, there may be one or two businesses that we would look to try and acquire that would fit nicely with the prop proposition. Well, if you're well, if you're in the commercial commercial insurance space or commercial property insurance space, uh, you'll make sure you get in touch with Peter and uh, and have a chat. Maybe there's a there's a there's a new home for you uh, at, at Prop. Um, so let's talk about lead generation. Actually, I've got a, a good friend who, uh, who 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 happens to be a next door neighbour as well, who who's quite heavily into the uh, lead generation and marketing space. Um, he was telling me about one of their. Uh, one of their key kind of suppliers where they it, it was quite fascinating actually that that essentially they create um publications uh and create content for particular parts of the world uh, parts of the sort of business world i suppose b2b uh in particular um which which ends up driving uh driving leads is that a direction you've gone in i mean and 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 just more generally with leads is that w- one of the reasons i've been i probably a business like avonmore we've probably not aggressively pursued say pay-per-click advertising um was because of the you know i suppose the quality of the quality of the of the leads that come in and how much filtering you have to do um and actually in the end it's always better to 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 go through a, a broker who's who's almost done that betting for you and enables you to be much more efficient and more effective um what are some of the innovative things that you've done in terms of the lead generation? Obviously, you talk about bringing in house, but then secondly, how do you how do you how do you find a way to ensure the quality of those leads? Because ultimately, there's an opportunity cost with mm. processing each of the leads. 
Yeah, um, we do a huge amount of advertising on pay-per-click. Um, and yes, we know it can be more expensive, but for us, it is a tap. I can turn it on, turn it off. I can up it, I can lower it. Um, I, I know now over the years of experience as to what my return on investment should be. I know what words work, what words don't work. I know what negative keywords we should be putting in to say that I don't want that type of lead. So in bridge and finance world, for argument's sake, you know, early on when you when you launch a campaign, you're probably going to have a lot of um, short-term loans, um, payday loans. Quickly, you know you're going to waste £10,000 in month one um, on those words, but you just got to put it into your cost of acquisition. Um, a bit like in the in the property world, we were talking about supplies and rates earlier. As long as I know that my return on, on investment is X, then we're quite happy. Um, I know there's going to be certain scenarios that I can't control the end users to what information they put in. So you do get a lot of Mickey Mouses that will just fill the details in. Um, and that's one of the reasons why with the website, we decided not to go down the route of email, take your email address and telephone number in order to speak to somebody. So um, take an auction uh, property as an example. We used to speak to so many people that would potentially go to auction to buy lot free at Clive Empson's auction. Um, it's on for two fifty, and they think they're going to pick it up for two hundred twenty thousand. It's never going to happen, um, or the chances of it happening are very low. So we would have wasted all our time giving them quotes, having a conversation with them um, to just give them quotes that they were never going to win that property. So now mm. where we've we've opened it up to say you don't, there is no barrier. You can get those quotes yourself without putting in your name, address, and telephone number. What we're finding is that people are then only coming to us once they've found, once they've won the property. Yeah, because they've already got the figures, and we can be pretty crude with our customers and say, look, if you just want figures, go to the website. Your figures are there; they, they are accurate. They will give you what your net loan and your gross loan and all your fees are going to be. Um, so we're saving time by not having to speak to people that are just never ever going to be able to buy or ever going to buy. Um, so our conversions, as a result, have actually gone up. Um, our cost per acquisition has gone up because there's less people clicking. Um, but I don't mind that. I'd rather be speaking to people that are ready ready to go. Um, what's massively changed, I think, for us over the last 18 months, two years, is we've invested in a in-house marketing team. Um, before, I always used to just do PPC and outsource it. Um, marketing team here are, are great. Um, they do what I'm not very good at. Um, they like the fluffy stuff. Um, for me, it's how much do I spend, what do I get back? Um, and there's an element of in the SEO world and in some of the marketing that we've done that we still don't know what our return on investment will be. But we've got to give it a go because um, if we don't, things like um, you know, TikTok, Instagram, it's like, okay, well, I know in PPC that if I spend X, I'm going to get X. And that is always within 1% of each other. In this world, I don't really know. So we've tried exhibitions. We've tried everything. But that's my marketing team going, we've got to try all these avenues because we want to get more leads and we don't want to be reliant on the drug of PPC leads. So we're now, as a business, in a much better place that we've got so many different avenues where our leads come from. Um, and some of them I'll, I'll call um, you know, after six months and go, we're better off moving the money from there to there. Um, but if it's in the overall goal of we want to be the, yeah, the, the, the starting point for consumers to look for special finance, I've got to make sure that our advertising and our marketing is, is out there. Um, and, I, and I don't want to be, we don't want to be a packager. I'm not interested in being a packager. There's not enough margin in it for me. I, I want to be able to, again, be in control, not control of the customer, but I want to be able to make sure that the information we're giving to a lender is 100% accurate. Um, when there's another broker involved and there's a third party involved, things can get lost in translation or pushed into grey areas. I, I, I don't want that. Um, so I want to be able to, like I say, just di advertise directly to customers in all of the different mediums that are out there at the moment. Um, and I say my marketing team are doing great on it. 
but I do know that I'm probably spending money that I might not get back for a long time. Yeah, um, I'm, I think there's there's there's, there's definitely there's definitely that that danger, isn't there? Um, it, I, I mean, it's interesting you talk about TikTok and Instagram, and you know, like I, I've I I, I I I really like my social media, you know, and I I've, I think I even have TikTok. I had a TikTok account. I deleted it off my phone. Uh, um, just just in case some of the rumors about the, uh, the the spying stuff is true, um, but uh, the you know the but but the, it's it's quite an interesting approach in the sense that um, I mean you know and even I even use Snapchat once upon a time and ironically ended up doing a deal with someone I I connected with on Snapchat. Kind of interesting. That, that's probably a bit of an anomaly for these. You know, if you look at the demographics of these of, of these particular platforms. Um, the, the demographics are, are such that, you know, if, if your average if your average customer is a, you know, 35 to 50 year old, you know, white male who's probably, you know, who's, who's probably uh, not going to be on those platforms, that investment may be in, in Instagram and TikTok, et cetera. I mean, Instagram's different. You know, I'm, I, I fall into that demographic and I know a lot of people like me who fall into that demographic they're on instagram but but let, let's say tiktok as one example or other forms of social media we maybe don't conform to that particular uh uh you know we, we probably aren't natural targets if you're if you're going to be spending money in those platforms but i suppose there's there's a there's a counterpoint to that whereby you're raising that brand awareness and you're and you're almost attracting the next generation of um of customer of Definitely. you know of, of your of your consumer and so it, it's an interesting it's an interesting approach because if you're expecting immediate results from it i'm not sure you'll see it from my own personal in my own personal opinion and your marketing team I, they're welcome to pick up the phone and tell me how wrong i am uh but i think that's the sort of thing that you'll that you'll probably see a return on if you're consistently doing it for the next three, four, five years. Um, yeah, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that now. Um, so we've got a lot of what I would call our, our bigger customers that have large portfolios that used to have an advisor and now use us because they'd rather do it via the website and they feel that they've got much more transparency um, and they've had really good advice. But we're also getting a lot of people um, that are, want to be property investors that don't really know where they're starting. But going back to my mate that did his commercial mortgage the first time, that didn't really know how much it costs to do a bridging loan. Yeah, you know, what deposit do I need? Um, what interest rates going to be? What are the hidden charges? Are they as bad as people are making out? We get a lot of those people, and they're funny enough coming from um, what I would call um, influencers, property influencers that are making customers pay ten thousand pounds to go on a course to tell them to go and use the money of an investor at twelve percent. Um, go and find a high net worth individual you can pay at 12% but then they're not quite talking about bridging finance um, and then when they're coming through to us they're asking us for a lot of help and going well hang on a second I've got this investor here that's giving me 12% and he's charging me 2% fees um, that I've got to answer to and I've got to go around and see him and do this and the other but actually I could borrow it less than that on a bridging loan um, so we're getting a lot of people that I think are given, being given misinformation via a lot of these property influencers um, that are now seeing our TikToks, seeing our Instagrams and actually going, oh, do you know what? Can we have a chat? Um, so those people probably go slightly differently to the, the, the bit I was saying a second ago about how I like people that are ready to buy and they've seen somewhere um, and they transact pretty quickly. So we do have a lot of people that are very early on in the stages of their career of I'm working in the city and I want to get out. 
Um, how do I do it? What are the costs? And the website does all that for them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a, a nice way of kind of building up your stable of, of future clients. Um, and I suppose if you, if, if you can, from a, I suppose from a brand, uh, a branded marketing perspective, you can engender a really positive feeling towards your brand if, if they've gone on a journey over three to five years with you um, in, you know, and because and, they'll feel a certain way about you and you've kind of broken, you know, you, you've, you've left the door ajar from for the minute when they're actually ready to transact, they, they're going to want to work with you. I mean, I've always used, I, I completely unrelated industry. Um, I'm not a big gambler. I don't gamble very often. Um, but I've, there's something about Paddy Powers marketing um, that's always appealed to me and their social media accounts always appeal to me. And so the once a year that I'll bet on, I don't know, let's call it the Grand National or some horse race. And again, I don't even like horse racing that much. Um, but let's say I'm at a race meet and I, I, I rather than go to the, you know, go to the bookies at the at, 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 at Ascot race, race course or whatever, I'll I'll do it on the on the Paddy Power app. Just because of the the emotional connection that I've built up with that brand, I suppose it's a what you're doing is you're doing it in a very similar way. Mm, yeah, um, exactly. And that was the whole idea behind it. All it was I, I want to be a brand. Um, we want pro, I want somebody to be sat in an auction house that can press a button on our on our app um, and go from two fifty to two five two to two five four to two five six and quickly see what that does to my margin, what that does to my profit. And the second they win it, they press a button and they get to, through to one of our property advisors. Yeah. Um, and we start the transaction there and then. And if you're then with a lender that allows you to do an AVM, um, you know, straight away, you could have a binding offer within 24 hours. Um, that's where we want to use the tech to be able to, to do it. Yeah. And, and to be fair, the, to be fair, I mean, my, my, one of my visions is, is essentially that it is essentially that someone who is in that auction, you know, the vision I have for Avonmore is that if someone who is in that auction that they can, they they can they can they can effectively at a click, click of a button if they've already kind of pre-registered um essentially they they can have a fully credit backed offer mm. the you know within you know within moments you nice. know within, within within you know within 10 15 minutes yeah you know because we've already done the you know even if you have to send a red book valuation out a red yeah. book value out because you need to the rubber stamp for your funding line mm. at the end of the day you've already done the work you've already done the valuation work so you know it's like well i'm going to lend anyway and all all the valuer is doing is just providing me with a rubber stamp because you know some you know some wholesale funding line that's all they care about um but you know because then you because then you've taken away the you've taken away a huge amount of friction you've taken away a huge amount of fear from from the lending process so it's it's interesting because i feel quite aligned with you in terms of what you're looking to achieve there yeah um okay um kind of last professional question i suppose and what what do, what do you see the future of broking as do you, what how do you how do you see the next five to ten years plus in the broking world you know it are we going to look back in in you know in, in 10 years time let's say and bro, you know commercial finance broking specialist finance broking is it is it going to look very different to today I, I would like to say yes, but I'm very – these things like um, you know, the legal process is so archaic, the land registry process so archaic. Unless all of that changes, I think if you just focus on the broking, I think there will be a lot more use of technology. Um, 
you know, onboarding tools really easy now. There's so many doing it. Um, AI, chatbots, um, you know, all those sort of things. I think you will have, as a, as a consumer, you will have access to information, rates, and applications at a click of a button. I do, I do believe that, and, and we're there now anyway, with, with a lot of brokers and a lot of a lot of lenders. Um, it's it's the bit in this, particularly in the specialist finance world. I cannot see that you're going to get to a point where everything can be done via a robot or without some kind of human interaction for those quirky assets and property types. I can't see that happening. Um, uh, I'm I'm a little bit concerned about fraud increases. Um, I do think the more you take out that human element, there are some very sophisticated people out there that can do a lot of things on on tech to raise money. Um, and again, in in house, we're forever looking at that just to see. Um, yeah, and as a as an internet based business and technically tele sales, um, we do get a lot of those people. You can see that is you know trying it on, uh, and that's potentially a downfall for for AVMs um, as well. Um, but I do think. I'd like to think it should get easier to get finance and easier to transact in 10 years. Um, but I can't see there being wholesale changes. I can't see that all of a sudden the, the, there's no need for a broker. Um, do, I can't see it. Do you, do you see, though, a kind of, uh, yeah, and I say this from the perspective of a, of a lender in special space, it's an incredibly fragmented market on the lender side. Um, you could make an argument, you're not even making an argument, it's a statement of fact, it's even more fragmented on the broker side. Mm. Um, do, you see, do you see a situation where there are fewer broker, brokerages, business, brokerage businesses in the specialist finance space because of mergers, M&A activity and yeah. the combination of tech, which, is, which effectively reduces, which effectively enables a larger firm to do more business and, and still provide that the level of service that, that the, the customer wants and needs. Yeah, I do. I, I, I think you'll have fewer brokers um, because, I, again, I do think some of the, the, the people that have been in the industry 25, 30 years that aren't keeping up to times with technology, you know, they're just their general cost and time uh, analysis would be very, very high. And I think, again, if you're a consumer that um, is that new consumer coming to the market would you go with somebody that's been in the industry 40 years that is doing it all in an old old school way that won't allow you to apply when you're on the tube um you know when you sat the train on the way home that wants to see you face to face every single time but i think those people will struggle um i think um yes they're going to have some great client banks but the client banks are going to get older um and and i think there will be a period of time like we're finding in the wealth management space at the moment where uh, advisors will leave the industry um, because it's got harder and regulation will get harder. Um, and, and I do believe there's a lack of advisors coming through at the bottom end um, that will, will stick it out. Um, because, you know, I, w w I think some of our team are in a nice position where they're getting a nice wage, they've got a nice environment, they're getting paid well, they're training, they're learning. But if you were just, I don't know, a one-man band, going into a one-man band and your, your training was just, you know, Johnny, who's a lot older um, and he hasn't got that, I think you're going to struggle. Um, I do think you're going to get a lot of lender mergers, or I say mergers, or acquisitions. Um, and I do think you'll see a couple of big brokers, uh, big brokerages either team up or buy each other out. Yeah, I, mean, I think all of that makes sense to me. I mean, I've been on records around the, the lender M&A 
space for some time. Uh, I think it just it, it invariably makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it doesn't, it, you know, the size of market that particularly, particularly the bridging market, but I think you can extend that to the development finance space, but the size of market that it is doesn't make sense. You, you know, if you go to the uh, NACFB Commercial Finance Expo in Birmingham, it doesn't make sense that there's hundreds of stands of people doing exactly the same thing. You know, it's it's not a, not that big of a market that you that you really could justify all those kind of people doing 40, 50, 60 million pounds, you know, running yeah. 40, 50, 60 million pound books. Yeah, I, completely, a, I completely agree. Um, you know, I, I, I we love the NSFB and everything that they do, but it's things like the exhibitions. It amazes me. I don't go. We don't go to them. Um, I don't go to them because I'm I'm too busy. Um, and I'm also saying, again, I don't understand how lenders can pay the money they do and take the amount of staff that they do when they've got a 21 day backlog um, and everybody's there competing for the business. I then think, well, the brokers that are going, why are, they, why are you there? Um, I, I, I just don't get it. Um, and then, I, you know, again, we've got a, a big panel of um, lenders that we can choose from. Um, technically, we, we can go hold a market, but there's a lot of lenders that come to us and say, can I go on your, your sourcing system or can I go onto your platform? And we're like, well, where, where are you different? What, what are you offering me that's different? Not from a monetary perspective. Um, we don't take anything to go onto the, onto the panel. Um, it's very much like, as a consumer, what are you offering that's different? Is it the asset type? Is it AVMs? Is it the LTV? Is it the, is it the works being funded? And if they can't, the general answer we get from a BDM will be, oh, but we just do what we say we're going to do. And it's like, well, yeah, everybody says that when they're trying to get on, onto it. Um, and I think as a result, those particular lenders that haven't got a niche – in a market like this, you can't survive. So you're going to have to back yourself in or be bought out by somebody else. Yeah, it, it, the, there's a sort of an air of inevitability about it, isn't there? Where either you're either you end up trying to win business by cutting rate to, to such an extent, that you're cutting rate and paying prop to such an extent that you end up making no money, so your working capital evaporates, or you end up taking too much risk on the credit side in a potentially falling market. Mm. And so you end up blowing up, blowing up your credit track record and therefore your funders mm. essentially don't want to work with you. So that, that's, that's, that's always the risk that you've got. So if, if, if all you can offer, if that's all you can offer is price and leverage and you're not actually thinking about other ways to be relevant, yeah, either merge and acquire and effectively, because the other thing that the benefit of scale is once you have scale, you have access to certain parts of the capital market. So you don't when you're in, you know, when you're, if you're, and I would always say that that from a lender's perspective, the starting point is 100 million a year. Mm. If you're not if you're not originating 100 million a year, there's there's parts of the capital market that capital markets that don't want to know you. And if you're not if you can't access those parts of the capital markets, you're effectively excluding yourself from uh, cost of funding or flexibility of funding. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you're doing 10, 20 million pounds a year and you're working some family office that's high net worth, yeah, you've got plenty of flexibility, but you're always at the whims of, you know some bloke called Ian, right? Yeah. That, that's, that's, you know, some bloke called Ian who's in his mid sixties, right? That's, that's, that's the reality of it. And if Ian woke up on the wrong side of bed, you, your client's not getting the money. So, but on the flip side, you know, if you're, you know, you, you're going over a certain ticket size and that's, uh, and that's where maybe the benefits of merging, um, or, or if you're a large lender acquiring smaller lenders or acquiring smaller books or smaller teams to enable yourself to go from, you know, that, 200 million you know 150 200 million pound a year to half a million, half a billion because again there's levels to it isn't there and once you get to that sort of level again things change even further for the better um so it 
it strikes me that there's inevitability that we will end up with, let's say, in the bridging space, probably half a dozen lenders that will that will probably dominate 60 to 80 percent of the market. And then everyone else will be um, everyone else will be sort of lifestyle businesses. Yeah, I agree. That, that's the, that's the direction I think it goes in. Um, if you're in the development space like we are, I think it's slightly different. Um but at the same, because it's more specialised and there's a bit more of a moat around the a, a moat around the, the work. But ultimately, the same principles sort of apply. And mm. the dynamics as to how it plays out might be slightly different. But I think the net result, we I think we just end up in the same place anyway, one yeah. way or the other. Um, let's talk about, as we sort of start to wind down, let's talk about um, influential people in your life, because we haven't had the opportunity to really talk about uh, anyone. Is it, Are there... Whether you, you know, whether they're people you find inspiring, despite whether you know them or not, or whether people have just provided you with really good mentorship, you know, who are the people that have been big influences in in your life, and and what have you drawn from them, as as you as you sort of look back as to where, you know, as to as the accomplished, very accomplished and successful individual that you are, mm. um, who who's been who's been a big influence, whether you know them or or not. Um, my biggest influence would be my dad. Um, which again, we're, we're not one of the, we're, we're not one of these families that are sort of soppy, if you know what I mean. Um, mm. yeah, you never sort of really talk about it, but you know, I look back and I think, okay, how how I got here, what 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 have I done, what's made me me, what's made me the personality that I am. Um, and it's it's I think it's my, my dad. Um, when we um, or mum and dad. Um, so you know, we we grew up and when I was at school, it was in a you know, nice house. He was a solicitor. Um, and you know, he, we owned another. He owned another shop. Um, everything was going really well. You know, you, um, as a as a kid, you were treated. I was treated to nice things. Um, and then there was a turn of events that it all went wrong, and we ended up with nothing. Um, so that period of time where we ended up with nothing obviously drew us closer together. But it made me go, do you know what? My dad had everything. So then having nothing, but he grew and he went again. Um, and he learned from mistakes and then he goes, uh, and he'll do anything. He's a bit of a wheeler dealer. Um, he's a bit like a, a Dell boy. You know, he's 70 in November. His Saturday and Sunday mornings are going to a car boot, buying something for a pound, selling it for five pounds. Um, that's what he's done all his life. Um, always gets on well with people, good relationship builder, pretends he knows everybody, but he doesn't. He just walks down the street saying hello to everybody. And he's just one of those people that wants to help people, wants to be liked. Um, and the way he's, sort of kept our family together with everything that happened um, is what drives me. Um, and I sit there now, now that I've got two young kids and I, I do everything for my, my, my wife and kids. Um, you know, I, I want to have the lifestyle that I started off with and I want to have the lifestyle that I have now. I want them to do exactly the same and experience stuff. Um, but I've, I've learned a lot from him without probably even realizing that I have. Um, you know, I, I played a lot of sports growing up. Um, done a lot of football, done a lot of boxing and stuff like that. But I know that I, I can chat to anybody. Um, I, I like to think I'm not an idiot. Um, you know, I know how to speak to people that haven't got anything, that people have got lots of money um, and do it. And I think that's all come from me basically just being around my dad the whole time. Well, I, I have to say, when you were describing your dad and you describing your dad's experiences, like, you, you can sit, definitely see how that's rubbed off on you. I think there's definitely an element of fearlessness about you for, for one thing. The fact that you, the fact that, it, it's almost like when you left TML, it was almost like it, it, it was almost like the most natural progression. You almost did, you, you you would have I would I'm picturing you almost did it without thinking in some ways. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. like a very natural thing to do. 
um you know and and just the ease at which you know you you know the ease at which you set up you could you can set up a business um and be very relaxed about it and i mean i I would say i'm probably fortunate in some sense that i i I share similar traits to yourself um you know me and ben literally i remember it well because i um i went out for a a business meeting with two potential people that i worked with at the time at tml that we were going to set up with sat around the house all afternoon brainstorming, doing this and the other, and it just didn't feel right. And I remember walking back into the office and saying, I want to go out on my own, but they're not the right people for me. And literally, Ben was on the pod next to me and went, I'll do it with you. Went, yeah, all right then. Um, <laughs> and I'm not, a, no kid, no word of a lie, that evening, we came up with a name, we handed us notes in the next day. Amazing. No thinking. Yeah, it's not like you had any, I mean, the thing is, we all know time kills deals, right? And, mm. you know, the more time you would have had to think about it and mull it over, the less likely it would have happened. And it's almost like it. And I guess is that is that instinct. It comes from your dad, right? That's yeah. for your, your dad's. That's that's that, that, even from the very little you said about him. It, it feels like that's where, where that's where that, in, it, that instinct comes in. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do with staff at the moment. I, they, they get fed up with me for telling them to stop faffing. Overthink a deal. Overthink a deal. Overthink a deal. Take too long. I've got to do this. I'll go. Um, I'm sitting and I'm stewing over whether I need to call this person, do this person. How am I going to present this? It's like, just get on with it. There's no point faffing. Um, you know what the deal is. You know what the asset is. You know what the, the outcome is. Present your deal. Move on. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, if you make mistakes, you make mistakes. You know, we've got academy people, and, um, and I think they like the fact that make a mistake, make a mistake. Learn from it. If you don't learn from it, that's the bit that I don't like. Um, if you if you make the same mistake three or four times, I don't like it. Um, but the reality is we're going to waste money on marketing. I'm going to waste money on advertising. You're going to mess a deal up. It's going to go wrong. You've presented it to the lender wrong. You haven't asked the right questions from your client. Yeah, all of that's going to happen. Don't worry about it. Like, What's the worst that can happen? Um, it's like we, we go again. We've wasted a little bit of money. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's un- unless... I- Unless a decision or an action is is what I'd call a five year fatal, i.e. the business is dead in five years because of that, within five years because of what you're doing, there's generally no. Re- there's you know you just got to allow uh, allow people to just get on with the job and 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 just keep going and and, and let them let them make mistakes. I think if you try to, you know, if you try to be perfect, you never get anywhere. And I think I've definitely been guilty of it plenty of times in my career. I mean, as, mm. as as uh, as my business partners ahead would would also admit to, um, and and I think it's the it's the right approach without question. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned you mentioned family. Um, how do you you know how do you stop your uh, how do you stop your kids from becoming spoiled? You know, and and, and I asked the question I asked the question because I'm probably in quite a similar position to yourself. It's yeah. Like, how how do you draw the line between giving the kids a good life? And making sure that when they grow up, they've got the right work ethic and they've got a good work, not the right work ethic, they've got a good work good ethic and they value and they value hard work. Uh, I struggle with that. I really do. Um, me more so than my wife. Um, and probably more so with my daughter. I think she, she knows how to work me. She's got me wrapped around her little finger. Um, but it's only, I would say, in the last year as the kids have got older, because they're seven and ten now, when they were younger, I could just never say no. Now they're starting to understand the value of money. Um, and one of the big things I've done, again, in the last year is I bring them in the office quite a bit. Um, and they don't quite, they didn't quite get it at first because, you know, they come into a nice big office. You know, we, we're in a service office. It's not mine. Um, and they think that daddy owns everything. So it's like, oh, this is amazing. But actually, when you sit down and you talk to them about 
you know, what you do, how you do it, even at seven and ten. They are starting to understand it. And recently when we were on holiday, um, yeah, they wanted to they wanted to go to a particular water park every day. And I was like, look, this is we're only going once because it's expensive. Um, mm. And when I explain to them how many hours I need to work in order to pay for this, I'm, I know particularly with my 10 year old, she got it and she understood it. Um, it seems like now we make them, we make them do chores around the house for their pocket money. Um, they don't get a lot of pocket money, um, but they yeah, they they need. We're trying to teach them how to save. You know, we're you know, financial advisors at the end of the day. I'm trying to teach them about money, what it costs, how much it, how, how much time it takes Daddy to earn that particular money um, to do it. Um, but I am terrible when they sit there and say, oh, "I really want that pudding," or um, yeah, and I go, "Oh, do you know what? Yeah, you you, you can have it." Um, literally last night, my wife asked me about Christmas and said, what are we going to do for Christmas this year for the kids? Which Father Christmas are we going to go and see? Should we go for the cheaper one or should we go for the more expensive one? And I was first time ever, I was like, we're going for the cheapest. Um, I want to go for the cheapest one that's possibly there um, because, you know, the, the market's struggling. Times at times are, are hard and what they are. But also, I don't want the kids to just think that this Christmas is all about going to the most amazing light show and, and what have you. I want them to go to the sort of rough and ready side of things that are, that are out there um, and potentially see that Santa that hasn't got, <laughs> hasn't got the real, that hasn't got the real beard and stuff like that. Um, so I'm, I'm trying, but I, I, I do, I do struggle with that. And my wife is a lot better than me at saying no. And, and I need that. I need that leveler um, in my, in my life to do it. She's she's the she she's the yin to your yang basically or yeah or or vice versa. But the kids um, know it. The kids know it. And they play on it. Um, you know, mum says no, go straight to dad. Um, so yeah. now we're having to little things like I have to make sure that yeah, my, my you know kids are my, my my eldest has now got um a, a mobile phone just to to be able to use when she um when she goes out with you know other friends and family and stuff like that. And it's it's then when she messages me, I'm always checking with my wife now. Like, hang on a second, she hasn't put it in the family group. She's put it separately. Is she playing a game? And we're sort of just picking them up on that all the all the time at the moment. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a tricky one. My uh, my wife and I are both um, children of Im- immigrants, so we, you know, I think we had this sort of. I think we're both quite strict parents, and we're quite tough. But then we, we're super inconsistent. It's like we'll be really tough and really strict, and then you know, all of a sudden, you know, the kids got an iPhone, new tennis racket, yeah. new, you yeah. know, new this, new that. And you're like, oh, okay, so we're tough, and then we're not. So it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's like, oh, we drive past the McDonald's, and they're like, can we have McDonald's for lunch? We're like, all right, then. You know, yeah. you know, you know, that that's a habit that sort of starts to creep in. It's always a tricky one, isn't it? Um, okay, cool. And in terms of like lifestyle habits, you know, um, is a, you know, outside of work, how how do you like to spend your time? And you know, you quite into your sort of uh, fitness, wellness, anything like that? Yeah, I, I, I'm. I, I, I'm, I always have a hobby. I always have to have a couple of hobbies. I have to do stuff that get me away from work. Um, you know, I go to the I go to the gym regularly. Um, I I I still from the sins now. I've started playing vets football again. Um, I played football uh, at half decent standard. Got to a point where kids took over and stopped playing. Um, never thought I'd miss it. Go back to that first game and you get the change room banter all the lads and then you want to play football again. So I'm back playing, playing football on a, on a Sunday afternoon for, for, for a decent vet side. Um, I did a lot of boxing for a period of time. Uh, that was brilliant. Best fitness, best thing I've ever done. Um, you know, I had a free white collar fights for charity for my sins. I was only going training once. The next thing you know, I'm, I'm one of these people that I'm all in. If I'm going to do it, we, we do it all. Um, and yeah, and then at the moment it's gym, but the most of my time at the moment is, is outside of work is kids. Um, I'm lucky that my kids are 
quite sporty now. Um, I've got them into, they've been to so many different classes and things that they either like or don't like that they've now found the things they like. And my daughters are really good at athletics. She had a first athletics competition, never win one, both the races she went into by quite a while. Way. So they've asked her to step up in the groups and into more competitions. So I'm there Tuesday, Thursdays in a competition this Sunday. Um, She's now half decent footballer as well so she had a first proper league game of the weekend scored two goals won the game in the last five minutes that's mondays and fridays so the only day off in the evening that we have between my kids is a wednesday night um and wednesday night i go to play pool with my mates in a pool league um so it's just a hectic but i'm one of these people i can't sit still i have to be be doing stuff i can't sit at home doing absolutely nothing because i'd end up working um, and it's only in the, I was saying the last 18 months where those kids have got to that really nice age where they're having a proper chat with you and they are really interested in sports. So I've sort of started to sort out my work life balance. Yeah, but I think, I mean, and I find myself actually, it's a remarkably similar position to yourself, Peter, where, you know, it's, um, I, I can't, you know, people, Thursday nights are normal nights to go, go out and have work events or work dues and things like that. And I can't do it because, my oldest has got rugby training. My my middle son is a very good tennis player. He has his tennis training. Mm. And it's like, well, I can't be up in town on the beers and having steaks and curries and things like that because I've got to be one one of us is going yeah. to be doing is, 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 is going to be doing mum and dad taxi. So uh, yeah, that's the same in two different places, right? Yeah. Yeah. On a Friday evening, exactly the same. Both of them have football in 20 minutes apart from each other. Sorry, 20 miles apart from each other, both at five o'clock. So yeah. it's like actually certain evenings, unless other mums and dads sort of jump in, you know, I, I can't have a Friday night out anymore like I used to. Um, I still make up for it, I think, on other on other days. Um, but yeah, I actually get, I, I like a Sunday, like this Sunday morning, little boy's got a football match at nine o'clock. I've got a friend's 40th in the evening. I know it's going to be a drunken affair in the evening, but it will get me up to go to football, whereas it yeah. used to be I'd lay in bed moping. Um, with a hangover now it's get up go to football clear my head absolutely sorted um and i'm nowhere near you know going out as much as i used to because of the because of the kids um and also if you spend too much time with the kids i don't then get time for myself to do going to the gym um i'm a big football fan so i'm a season ticket holder at portsmouth so i try and get on the saturday afternoon then but the good thing for me now is the kids want to come yeah so my wife then gets the saturday afternoon off because i can take the kids without feeling guilty yeah, that's that's quite a nice uh, that's quite a nice touch. Um, mm. Yeah, so I, I know I know they've got quite a good setup at Portsmouth, and uh, mm. despite despite their travails, uh, you know whether yeah. they're up, up where, where whichever division they're in, they all, all seem to get a good following. So yeah, uh, and and I suppose the other good thing is you you you're, you're not short of uh, you're not short of t- uh, seats if you need to get a ticket. No, yeah, exactly. so yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's a bit harder for me as a season ticket holder at Arsenal at the moment because we're playing well. Uh, yeah. Getting getting tickets for the kids is a bit more uh, a bit more of a challenge, should we yeah. say? So, um, cool. And uh, just just I suppose to close up, uh, Peter. I mean, obviously, it's been a it's been a great conversation, and I've enjoyed it immensely. Um, just the sort of the closing question, really, which is that you know I suppose if you were to speak to your younger self and I don't know whether that would be when you're at uni when you're contemplating dropping out or whether it was before that or or, or sometime after but if you were to give yourself uh, some self-talk to your younger self is there anything you would have advised yourself uh, when you were younger that maybe you would have liked to have done things differently now um, I tell myself to stop worrying stop worrying about what um, I think earlier on especially at uni I'm, I'm glad I finished it Things like at uni, and when, you know, I think as a kid, or yeah, I say a kid, anyone, anyone even before 21, you're always worrying about 
what does my mum and dad think? Where am I going to get this from? Where is that going to happen? I think over time, it might just be me as my personality. It's always seemed to, I just work harder. Um, I'll make it happen. I'll get out there and I'll, and I'll do things. So I think I'd just probably say to myself, just relax. I, don't worry. Um, I think I, there's an element of me that would like to have had a little bit more time out when I was a bit younger. Um, yeah, I didn't go traveling. I always wanted to go traveling. Didn't because I wanted to earn the money to go traveling. And then I earned the money and I didn't want to earn less money because I didn't go traveling. So you know, one of the things I've got in my life is I want to take a year off at some point to go traveling the world. And I'd like to go with my kids when they're at an age when we can appreciate it. It might be when they're 18 or what have you. Um, but yeah, um, other than break it to you, I hate to break it to you, Peter. I don't think the kids are going to want to go travelling with you when they're eighteen. <laughs> I had this uh, you might, you last might, week. you might want to do it sooner than that. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, again, probably another thing that we share, but uh, in a slightly different way. Um, anyway, I interrupted you. No, that's fine. And yeah, no, that, that's it really. Like for, for me, um, like I say, I, I, there's there's nothing. I, I don't. I never look back with regrets. Um, if something's happened that it's my fault, it's my fault. Um, if something's happened that I can't control, is I can't control it. Um, I, I'm just one of these. Dust yourself down, get on with it, go go again. Uh, and I am a big believer in sort of laws of attraction. I think actually, if I change anything, I wouldn't be where I am now. So, no, I, I actually I, I wouldn't, other than just say to yourself, probably calm down a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it's actually a common theme that. Um, that I've had when I it's a it's a question I ask at the end of the podcast consistently and and interestingly a lot of people will will give themselves a self-talk and will say look do this do that and uh, or, or change this but quite a lot of people say look I wouldn't be where I am I'm the product of my experiences and I wouldn't be where I am if I hadn't if if, if things hadn't been the way that they are mm. so um yeah in many ways I think you're you're you're, you're absolutely right to sort of be of that mindset so yeah uh, support that entirely um peter um thank you very much for for coming on if people want to reach out to you what's the best way of getting hold of you how, how does someone get in touch with you uh, again i'm one of these people that i'm my phone is always on um my email is always manned by myself i'm always available if anyone wants any help with just chat on property life business um they can call me on my mobile they can um, email me at peter at prop.io um with two piece um they can go onto the website, put an inquiry in, there's a contact us on there. Anything that people want to know, um, like I say, I'm very much one of these, I try and help everybody. So and, more than happy. And any social media profiles or? or, or yeah, or... so I've, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Facebook I keep as my own personal thing. Um, I'm, um, and I'll be honest, I don't really post a lot on, on Facebook. I'm not one of these people that just puts everything out there. I try and let the business do it because I'm trying to build a, mm. a brand. I don't want the brand, I don't want the brand to be me. Um, I want the brand to be the business and the team. Is there are there some prop social handles so Twitter Instagram yes uh, we've got we've got Twitter Instagram yeah Facebook um, you name it on social my my marketing team will tell me that we've we've got it um, but say my main thing is, um, is is I would say look me up on on, on LinkedIn um, from a personal perspective on there's my mobile number on there's my email address um, yeah, you can message me on LinkedIn and, and and anything you need just just shout okay awesome well peter thank you so much for coming on it's been a fascinating chat uh very inspirational and uh it, yeah i hope hope to see you again either on the podcast or in person soon yeah brilliant thank you for having me pleasure well uh thank you very much to peter williams for coming on to the podcast today it's been a fascinating chat and i've enjoyed it immensely i hope you our listeners have enjoyed it too 
Um, all it leaves me to say is to thank our sponsor, Avemore Capital. Uh, Avemore Capital is a development finance and bridging lender based in London, uh, lending on projects from £250,000 upwards. If you have an inquiry or a requirement for development finance or bridging finance, please get in touch with them at www.avemorecapital.com. I'd also like to thank Georgia Ashley, who's the producer of our show, and I'd also like to thank uh, Laura Wood, who's the assistant producer uh, who helps us with the bookings of the show. Uh, anyway, hope you've enjoyed today's show. It's been a pleasure. Uh, as ever, if you ever want to reach out to me, uh, you can get hold of me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at property underscore funder. Um, and that's been the Property Funder podcast. And we'll talk to you again soon.